The Worker Learner Podcast is brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education. Bringing together the expertise of Griffith University's academics and research centres, our professional learning is designed to deliver creative solutions for the workplace of tomorrow. Whether you are looking for opportunities for yourself or your team, we have you covered. My name is Saffron Benner and I'm the Sustainability Manager at Griffith University. Uh, But I also have a background and training in theatre where I work as a freelance dramaturg. And I'm speaking today from Mianjin, Brisbane, in Yagara, Jagara and Turrbal lands. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the unceded lands on which we all live and pay respects to Elders past and present and emerging First Peoples leaders. And today I'm talking to David Finnegan, a writer and theatre maker from Ngunnawal country. David is a playwright, a performance maker, a games developer who works at the intersection of science and art. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. How's it going, Sam? Not too bad. It's been a long time since we've chatted Um, and I think your career has changed quite a lot since uh, we first met, which was at least 20 years ago. And I've briefly introduced you, but do you want to explain to us in your own words what it is that you do um, across all these intersectional practices? (laughs) Sure, absolutely. So I make make theatre, I write plays, I create performances and I also develop games Um, and I do most of that work in collaboration with researchers so scientists um, particularly climate scientists and earth system scientists Um, so most of the work I do whether it's theater or games or or other kinds of performance or workshops is in collaboration or working with researchers in some way and often that work uh, takes place in in sort of arts venues um, it might also take place in boardrooms uh, for businesses or it might take place in, in classrooms or it might take place in, in uh, meeting rooms or online. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the background I come from is I was a theatre maker um, growing up and working in Ngunnawal country in Canberra um, and then gradually moved into this other space of making more interactive work, um, looking at different aspects of, of climate and global change. So. It's a really interesting journey that you've come on because I remember you as as a playwright, as a young playwright. So, what? How did you find these connections between art and science? And I guess you often work with corporate entities and in business areas as well. I know you've worked with banks. Mm. So, what do you see are the connections between art, science, and the corporate world? And how did you come to find them and, and work in them? <laughs> well, I'll tell my story first, um, and because I, I think the that's probably the easiest bit to answer. I started working with this uh, with this collective Boho Interactive back in two thousand six, two thousand seven. It was me and a group of other artists from Canberra, and the company we all sort of brought something different to the table. Um, uh, some of us wanted to work more with with research. We were interested in kind of what would it be like to kind of collaborate with uh, scientists. Um, Some of us were interested in interactivity and what it would be to kind of create theatre that was participatory and where the audience made choices that directed the the work. And that evolved into this very niche of a niche, uh, sub-niche of a sub-niche form where we were making, um, so I mean science theatre is a niche, 
and interactive theatre is a niche and interactive science theatre is an extremely small niche. Um, and what we discovered was that when we were in that tiny micro niche, there weren't many other people doing it. Um, we, were, we were really, you know, there were very few other artists out there in that tiny space. And that meant we were actually suddenly, uh, even as, you know, um, indie artists who are still figuring out, we were actually able to connect in with some really interesting organizations who needed that kind of work. So we started collaborating with museums and with research institutions. We did um, residencies with CSIRO, University College London in the UK. Um, but also along the way, we started having conversations with, um, with business. And the real reason, the real impetus for that originally was that we wanted to get the work we were doing, which was about climate and global change, out of the space of the arts, out of the kind of, um, to, to audiences who wouldn't come and see a show about climate theatre. They wouldn't come and, so we were kind of interested in getting out of the echo chamber. I'm kind of very much a decade and a half on, I actually, I think that was probably a mistake. I think... Um, I think the idea of getting the, the idea of the echo chamber and kind of trying to break out of the echo chamber, it's probably something that we were being fed that that was a very late 2000s kind of idea. And um, But what it meant was that we started these conversations with people who were very much out of our sphere. And um, we really pushed to kind of develop this practice going into businesses, dealing with kind of corporates. Because um, we thought it would be really rich to have conversations we could never have in the art space. And what happened as we pushed further into that we sort of saw okay there is actually an opportunity here to develop work in this space um where we can get we can get commissions we can get uh, presentational fees and we can actually charge um real money not real money in business terms but real money in arts terms and suddenly we were sort of then we were able to say you know what, we can step back from trying to get funding through these oversubscribed arts funding systems we can stop trying to survive on tiny amounts of money that you know arts venues can afford to give you or you know try to make money off tickets or any of that ridiculousness which is really you know quite damaging i think for artists to try and make any sort of living on that it becomes quite stressful and, and distressing um and we were able to sort of say okay you know what we're going to push and do a few um gigs that we feel are meaningful with um with with businesses and that is going to fund us to be able to do work that we care about with organizations with, with communities that would never be able to pay um so we're able to sort of yeah get off that treadmill to a degree and that became a really useful uh practice to be in and that's still where where boho sits and where i sit now fantastic uh you really have built yourself a kind of niche market but a really important one i'm interested in that idea you were talking about the echo chamber um and what um so what are the limitations, what are the advantages of theatre, I guess, and creative practice for solving science-based problems? And what are the limitations of it? What What is it that, I, do you feel like sometimes, I often feel like, you know, theatre is preaching to the, to the converted, uh, but then it has many advantages when I work in a sustainability area, that creative practice. Mm. So what do you see are the connections between art and science and that broader business and and what are the limitations and advantages of a theatre background? Yeah, sure. So we we have a very specific kind of answer to that um, with, with myself, with Boho, which is not going to be everyone's answer. But um, what was really striking to us 
um, when we really started diving into collaborating with with uh, researchers. We did a long collaboration with University College with their Environment Institute about a decade and a bit ago. We're multi-year. We're artists in residence there for a couple of years. And we were focused at that time, we were really interested in looking at climate models. We wanted to sort of dig in and sort of say, okay, we, we want to be able to understand how these models are made, what they say, and when, they're, when we should trust them and when we shouldn't. We want to be able to communicate that out. That feels like a really important piece of the, of the kind of conversation, um, you know, partly for us and partly um, it would be kind of interesting for other people to grasp. The, the deeper we went into looking at how climate models work and models in general, scientific models, the more we realised, oh, actually, um, art is a kind of modelling process. So a scientific model, any kind of model, is basically a representation of something in the real world, a real-world system, but it's simplified. Um, and so it only contains maybe some of that real system's parts and connections. So a model car is a representation of a real car. It's not as big as a real car. It doesn't have all of a real car's workings and, and inside bits. But if you'd never seen a car before and you wanted to have some idea of what a car was, model car would be a good place to start. You can have kind of models that are extremely simple, like, you know, a, a map on the back of a napkin is a, a useful model of how to get from A to B. You don't need to have every sort of detail of the route kind of shaded in if you're only interested in how to get from your starting point to your end point. And you can go all the way up from that, from these very simple models to extremely complex software simulations of the weather or the climate. And all these models are basically designed to help us understand how these real world systems work and try to make better decisions when we engage with them. And in a lot of ways, a theatre show is just another example of that. A theatre show is a representation of the real world. It contains some of the real world's connections and interactions, but not all. It's usually as simple as you can get away with. Um, and it's designed to illustrate something about the real world so that you can maybe make better decisions in your life. What we found as we kind of went into this space was that we have this skill from theatre of dramaturgy, storytelling, um, that was really useful in constructing models. Um, because a lot of the time scientists, sometimes they're creating these models, like, you know, the, the big sort of 26 GCM climate models that, that the IPCC used to sort of generate their predictions. These are these massive kind of software simulations that are very niche and for specialists only. But a lot of the time scientific institutions are producing models that they want people to engage with. Like, you know, a, an economic model, an economic forecast is a kind of model they want the public to engage with. They want policymakers to engage with. And that is actually a story that we're telling about the world. That, that kind of model is a, a an, an illustration of some aspects of the real world. Theatre makers are really good at kind of telling stories and actually turning complex systems into meaningful stories that people can engage with. So particularly what we found was when scientists were working with complex systems and they wanted to communicate aspects of that work out to people, we could become really helpful in that space because we we were making models. And when we started speaking, using the word modeling, we realized that actually we had a lot in common with what we're doing and what scientists are doing. So um, as an example, one project that Boho is working on right now is we've got a commission from the CSIRO's uh, Center for Marine Socioecology in Hobart. They were looking at um, the future of 
coastal towns in part of Tasmania on the east coast over the next decade. They're interested in what might be some of the tipping points or, or kind of key moments that could really affect the these communities, either the ecological tipping points, if, you know, the rock lobsters crash or the kelp forests collapse, or social tipping points, if there's a sort of demographic shift, too many people move to town and the town systems are overloaded, or too many people move away and it kind of falls away that way. So they they want to take these these small towns in Tasmania and make a model of how these towns operate. Um, but it's not a model that's going to be plugged into a computer and then be sort of generating graphs or, or diagrams. It's a model that they want to share back to those communities for conversation. So it's it's scientifically informed. It's, it's kind of all uh, based on data and, and research, but it's a model that's really to provoke conversation and reflection. And so they've come to us and said, well, we've got all this data can you help us make this model that we can then share back to people in these communities? So what can you give us an example of what that model, what one of those models might look like that you're going to take back to the community? Because it feels like um, in the example you've given me, you take um, the science and then use theatre techniques or creative practice to share that back with communities or with scientists or, or whoever. But how do you take it and turn it into something, I guess, theatrical? How do you create an, a performance work that is uses all the tools of theatre to communicate um, a message or an idea? Yeah, sure. So this is where it kind of it slips more into the interactivity and, and kind of gaming space, this particular project. Um, so with Boho, when we started experimenting with interactive theatre, we went deeper and deeper into that space and we went from doing shows that were us on stage with the audience kind of controlling the action to ending up doing shows which were kind of the audience seated around a table and a story unfolding on a table which looks perhaps more like a tabletop board game um, or perhaps a tabletop role-playing game. It's got more of those sorts of qualities. So weirdly, we just sort of strayed into that deeper and deeper and then kind of found ourselves as a bunch of theatre makers making things that look a lot like board games. So that's what this, in this example, what you might imagine is a group of people seated around a table and they've got a map in front of them of a, of a community, of a small Tasmanian coastal town. And um, there might be some pieces, some, uh, some stories that emerge, some people might be invited to make decisions about, you know, what are the, uh, the lobster fish people going to do this turn? Or what, are the, um, what is going to happen with the, the kelp forest this season? Is there going to be a salmon aquaculture farm or are we going to kind of pull back from that? So it becomes a kind of, uh, I guess, around the table experience. And these are the sorts of things we've done for, um, we've done one of these games that looked at a, an area south of Stockholm um, a few years ago. We were collaborating with the Stockholm Resilience Centre and an NGO in Sweden called Miljöverkstan. And they had this, this beautiful nature reserve called Flatten, which is just south of Stockholm. Um, and it's this amazing thousand-year-old oak forest that um, has these incredible uh, you know, biodiverse corridors where uh, wolves and lynx travel um, and also a, a species of beetle that is found nowhere else in the world. So it's an incredibly precious space. At the same time, um, when we began work with these with these organisations, there was a housing crisis in Sweden. It's around 2015, 2016, uh, Sweden had just accepted nearly half a million Syrian refugees 
and there were not enough houses to take all these refugees and you you can't have a homeless population in Scandinavia in the winter people will freeze to death so they needed houses in a hurry and so there was suddenly this very urgent conversation of okay well do we really need a thousand year old oak forest as much as we need houses right now like how do we value these two things against each other and that's a very tough question there's a lot of emotions in that space so we were brought in to kind of create a, a game that was once again a model around a table and that game was was designed to bring together um, local government, the, the Stockholm local government, with people, uh, community representatives, researchers, um, people from the area. So there were some Romani representatives, young people, um, and they would play this game around the table, which would kind of illustrate the history of this area and, and some of the possible futures. And then that would be a kind of platform for them to have conversations about what kind of future the space might have. So yeah, that's the way these often these these experiences often play out. Fantastic. Um, I'm interested in how modeling or how you see modeling influencing decision making, or how does storytelling and modeling influence people's decision making? Because I think in theater we often try to do that. We present stories where we're trying to impact people to make a decision around a particular issue, whatever that might be and not always succeeding in that. So how does the process that you use um, effectively do that? How do you use modelling and storytelling to impact people's decision-making? Uh, well, I mean, the, the first, the, the, the short answer is um, we can't. Nothing that we do or say in a show is going to really um, change anyone's mind or necessarily even impact anyone's thinking. What a model can do, though, um, or perhaps it's best to say what an explicit model can do. So scientists will distinguish between implicit models and explicit models. And the idea is that we all have implicit models. We're all using implicit models all the time. So in our heads right now, we have this idea or this understanding of how the world works. And we have an idea of, you know, if I do this, then this will happen. Um, and that, you know, even going as simple as a tree, a tree has an implicit model of the world such that when it gets cold, the tree thinks, okay, it's time for me to drop my leaves. So we all have these models that we're running in our heads. The idea with scientific modeling is that you take that model and you put it on a piece of paper or on a software simulation, and then other people can check your assumptions and agree or disagree. So you've sort of said, oh, I think the way that this system works is that if we keep adding fertilizer to this river, then sooner that when, when we add this much fertilizer, there's going to be a, an algae bloom in the lake. And you put that down and sort of say, I think we can handle this much algae. Someone else comes along, looks at that model and says, actually, no, I think the system can handle much more fertilizer. I think it's not a problem. Um, now, if you were just two people talking to each other, you could kind of be arguing for hours about this. Once it's written down, the idea is that you can kind of agree, you can see where you agree and where you disagree. And it just like cools the fever a little bit. So hopefully what these models do is provide people an understanding of where they agree, where they disagree, where they're very sure or where they maybe have a bit less uh, certainty. Um, and hopefully they can become a, a playful way to talk about something difficult and, uh, and high stakes and emotional without needing to get to that sort of emotional extreme. That's the goal. Um, I will say it, you know, maybe it, maybe it works sometimes and maybe it doesn't work other times. 
like everything else, this is a, a tool and it's useful sometimes. It's it's not useful at other times. This is just one one thing in the toolkit that you would bring out at certain moments. It's not a kind of solution for every problem. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the important or one of the keys to climate action, climate adaptation is behaviour change. So it really interests me that you can use something like that, that sort of tool to influence maybe behaviour change in some way. Do you have any examples of where your work has successfully made made a difference to people's behaviour or to their thinking or really changed their approach to the work that they were doing or the impact they were having either environmentally or socially? Well, um, I'll be really blunt and saying no because uh, <laughs> partly um, the, the biggest reason for that is that we're a small team. Um, so myself, either working solo or working with Boho, we're a team. We usually come in and we collaborate with an organisation to develop something that they will then go on to deliver in the kind of long term. And often we kind of work with them for a few months to create something that they will then present ongoing. And, and that means that we we don't we very rarely have the, the resources to do kind of um, the proper surveying and, and research that you would want to do to sort of say, yes, this created behaviour change. We did have a collaboration with the London Science Museum many years ago where they actually did do sort of follow-ups and they kind of surveyed people upon entering the, the space about a whole set of questions surveyed them afterwards, did follow-ups three months later, and the results from that were extremely encouraging. People had really taken these this sort of toolkit of ideas that we'd given them and implemented in their day-to-day -day life. But I would say that's not strong enough for me to sort of justify and be like, oh, you know what, we're changing the world. I don't think it's, I don't think it's quite um, as clear-cut as that. Um, what I can say is that we've, um, we've kind of really usefully... Uh, we've created some really useful conversations. Um, there's a project we did in Singapore a few years ago working with the Earth Observatory at Nanyang Technological University where we developed a whole set of games looking at um, disaster response, particularly the lead-up to a disaster. Um, so the Earth Observatory looks at natural hazards in Southeast Asia, volcanoes, typhoons, earthquakes, tsunamis, landslides, and so on. And they wanted us to make a set of games that would help local governments wrap, wrap, wrap their heads around what are the sorts of challenges and trade-offs that you might face in the period from the first warning of a disaster to the disaster itself hitting. Um, there's a lot of kind of very intense challenges and decisions that have to be made in a hurry. There's a lot of, there's a lot riding on it and there's, you know, you don't get many chances to practice. So these games were intended to be a sort of simulation tool. Um, we developed those games with the Earth Observatory and then they took them out to, um, we, we kind of developed them, the, then we kind of handed over to the Singapore Science Centre. We trained up a group of facilitators there who deliver the games kind of ongoing. And then those facilitators took those games out to local governments in um, uh, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, um, Malaysia uh, and the Philippines. And they've been played there with NGOs, with local governments, with communities and used as a sort of platform for conversation to sort of say, okay, well, if a disaster of this kind hit your community, if it was a storm like this, what would you do? Where would be your kind of, um, what are the barriers to your, your family evacuating, for example? What would stop you from being able to evacuate? Or what would be the challenges for you as a, a local mayor 
to be able to declare an evacuation? What would stop you from getting the word out to certain communities? Um, now, it's really hard to sort of say, yeah, these games completely changed people's behavior and, and transformed, uh, you know, how people went about that uh, went about that the next time there was a disaster. Um, but uh, <laughs> feel nevertheless very proud of that project and very grateful when we when we have presented it. Um, one really lovely example when we presented it in the Philippines a few years ago with a group there, um, there was a, a bunch of people who experienced uh, Typhoon Haiyan or Yolanda in 2013 um, from the Tacloban region in, in eastern Luzon. And they we played this game and then they used the game. They kind of The game is about a sort of evacuation in the face of a typhoon. And that game became the prompt for them to discuss and share their own experiences and reflect on what worked and what didn't work in that moment. So you'd hope that these sorts of things help transmit um, and and communicate out important ideas. But I think, you know, I, I would be, it would be remiss of me to say I've got all the facts and I can prove that we've changed the world. No, I, I, I wouldn't expect you to have, but I, I think it's really fascinating that while you might not have a direct impact on behaviour change or, you know, really completely changing the way people approach things that what you're doing is facilitating conversations and opportunities for people to maybe change the way they think or or challenge the way they do things and that that's I think just as important that's an important part of the process of climate action climate adaptation um, and of of dealing with a future world I think that that that's and that's also what I think theatre does when it's most successful it might not change the world but it might make people or at least one person you know reevaluate or, or think about how they do things how they approach things and and the way they see the world maybe yeah maybe i i think that's right i also think though that um i well i i kind of i feel like i i let go of the idea of trying to engender behavior change a few years ago and it became it became about because we did have this very clear intention that we were going to go into um, we were going to take our work into the boardrooms of mining companies um, and we were going to present this work about climate and, and climate modelling with these people who were going to be really, you know, the, the exact opposite of the audience that would ever show up for a climate theatre show. So we did, we kind of created this this work, we framed it as management training and team building and we took it into, uh, yeah, the offices of, of kind of mining companies, did it in, you know, boardrooms in, in Martin Street in Sydney and in, in London um, and we we did have these great conversations with these sort of executives from um, mining and, and sort of uh, resource development organisations. I don't think that we shifted the dial on their thinking at all. I don't think that we changed anyone's mind. And actually, I think that we, you know, maybe we were even being co-opted. Maybe it was them, them that was kind of getting the benefit of sort of saying, yeah, we we're open-minded. We brought these artists in to talk about climate. We, we kind of, you know, um, without any intention of changing their actual, their actual behavior. So the other kind of side of that was that we thought, actually, you know what, we're not, we're not changing people's behavior. And even more than that, by trying to, by creating work with an intention to change people's behavior, we're creating bad art. We're literally making work that is sort of trying to anticipate people's response and, and nudge them in a particular direction or even coerce them in a particular direction. And maybe some people can pull that off. Actually, I think probably a lot of artists do have that skill. I definitely don't. Um, one thing that I've really appreciated about 
the climate conversation in the last few years, um, as compared to say the, the 2000s or the 2010s, is that now if you've got a, a group of 20 people sitting around a table playing a game or 150 people in a the theatre audience, then you've got 150 different relationships to climate and you've got everyone on their own journey with this stuff everyone having their own emotional relationship to this issue everyone's dealing with it in their own way in their own time and they're on different points of that journey and there is no no kind of two people are going to have the same reaction to a work or and so trying to anticipate those reactions and and lead people in a direction um (laughs) Again, maybe some people can pull it off. I, I certainly couldn't. I had, to, I had to give it up. And I had to be like, you know what? The, the job is to try and make something that's entertaining and informative and rich and, and satisfying. And if it can be all of those things and generate a good conversation, then that's, that's enough. That's, like, that's already a big ask. So, yeah, <laughs> I kind of leave absolutely. it at that. No, absolutely. Um, I was going to say what, what is it if it's not – if you understand that it's not about impacting behaviour change or changing the world, what is it that motivates you? But I think you've kind of answered that with just then. I think I think you're kind of interested in maybe generating those conversations that, yeah? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's probably two different things. In my art practice, um, I just love making theatre. I love it. I love making performance. <laughs> I'm hooked on it. I love the idea of giving people a good night out is an incredible thrill it's a it's a it's such a privilege if someone would come and choose to spend their night with a work that you've created and i just want to give people a good time um and it also happens that i'm obsessed with climate and uh, fascinated by all this stuff so naturally if i make a work of theater i'm probably going to want to share the thing that i'm obsessed about um with that audience so that's the kind of the goal really for theater but working with organizations it's a different story because typically when we're working with these orgs these organizations do have a, um, a, a sort of agenda. They do have a, a community that they're, that they're working with and they, do, they have a theory of change. They have their own sort of uh, trajectory that they're on. And what I will come and do is, is to try and uh, support that organization in, in, in the way that I am able, in, by making a sort of rich model, a workshop, a game, um, a scenario that they can then use to communicate to their, to their community. So, for example, recently I worked with um, an NGO called Climate Safe Lending, and they're a financial NGO based in the UK and the US, and their focus is on helping banks transition to net zero. Um, and there's a lot of banks out there who have made a, a commitment in the last sort of 18 months to a net zero um, lending portfolio. They've said we're going to be Paris aligned in our lending and our, and our financial practices. Um, but they don't yet know what that means. You know, it's a really, it's one thing to make, it's one thing to make commitment. It's another thing to actually carry it out. And sometimes they made that commitment with no intention of actually following through. You know, it's just greenwashing. Yeah. But there are banks out there who genuinely intended to, who are genuinely interested in and intending to make their lending portfolio net zero aligned. And so they've now got, there's this, you know, some easy things like, okay, you're no longer going to lend money to, to coal mines. That's simple. But then there's the next layer of complexity. Are you going to lend money to a cement factory? You know, we still need concrete. Are you going to lend money to a, a seaport in Kenya? 
that's uh, that's doing cargo ship loading? Are you going to lend money to a, um, a a battery hen farm? Those are a bit more those are a bit more kind of uh, challenging questions. And so, now climate safe lending, their job is to work with these banks and help them kind of navigate what are the kind of uh, the, the challenges and the the opportunities in this net zero space for them. They asked me to create a game for them that illustrated some of these issues for banks dealing with um, the transition to net zero. And that's a game that, like, I'm not a financial expert at all. Um, it was an absolute pleasure kind of diving into that. And I luckily get, get to work with a lot of experts. But they've taken that game, and that game now sits in their portfolio of, of kind of tools that they use. They've run it at workshops. They've kind of delivered it as a digital event a few times. So that game is now out there as part of what they do. So I guess with those collaborations, you know, I'm lucky enough to sort of say, well, perhaps I'm not out there kind of engendering behavior change, but these people in their relationships hopefully are, and using these tools might aid them in that job. Um, yeah, that's that's the goal anyway. I think that your work is really inspirational and it's been a really inspirational conversation. Um, congratulations on all these successes and um you know, I hope I hope it keeps going. It's it's really important and extraordinary work. Thank you um, so much for talking to me today. It's it's been really uh, fascinating and and inspirational. Thank you, Zach. Thank Thanks you so David. much for having me. Pleasure. Thank you. The Worker Learner Podcast was brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education. Thank you.